Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, October 16th. In today's news, a senior State Department official says he was ordered to lay low after the White House put the so-called Three Amigos in charge of Ukraine policy. Rudy Giuliani pressed President Trump to eject a Muslim cleric from the U.S., but Rudy's never registered as a foreign agent. And the Washington Nationals are going to the World Series. But first, the big idea. Elizabeth Warren came under sustained attack for the first time during last night's Democratic primary debate in Ohio. Most of the other 11 candidates on stage took at least one shot at the Massachusetts senator during the three-hour slog over her policies, her experience to serve as commander-in-chief, and her willingness to question the motives of Democrats who support less transformational ideas. Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, and Joe Biden each took turns criticizing Warren over her support for Medicare for All and her purest approach to populism. Warren declined four separate times to directly answer whether her Medicare for All proposal would increase taxes on the middle class. Warren will only say that total costs go down for the middle class under her plan. Klobuchar said that the plans Warren gets so much credit for introducing are more like pipe dreams. More than once, the Minnesota senator said Warren's approach is both inflexible and impractical. Former Congressman Beto O'Rourke accused Warren of supporting what he called a punitive tax policy on the rich. Businessman Andrew Yang questioned Warren over her plan to break up the big tech companies. Kamala Harris chastised Warren for not agreeing with her that Trump's Twitter account should be suspended. Unprompted, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard from Hawaii twice roped Warren into her answers, questioning the senator's foreign policy credentials and noting her lack of military experience. Warren held her own, and she relished being center stage. She spoke by far more than anyone else up there, never letting the moderators cut her off. But the myriad of hits underscored why so many prominent Democrats are worried about her electability in a general election. The debate also offered a reflection of how much Biden has been fading. The former vice president went for long stretches without talking, quite a contrast to the first debates, even as everyone in the field appeared to give him a pass on Hunter Biden and his work on the board of a Ukrainian energy company. Joe Biden said he and his son did nothing wrong. Bernie Sanders, meanwhile, showed no signs of lingering health trouble in his first public appearance since suffering a heart attack two weeks ago. But he also didn't answer questions about his health. The Vermont senator rolled out endorsements last night from two members of The Squad, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York, and Ilhan Omar from Minnesota. Bernie says he'll have a rally in Queens this Saturday with AOC. Buttigieg was much more forceful and confrontational than during any of the previous debates. It was a strong performance that kept him in the mix the whole night. At one point, he turned to Gabbard, a fellow combat veteran, and told her that she was dead wrong to say the U.S. should immediately withdraw all troops from the Middle East, including Syria. Trump's recent decision to withdraw from northeast Syria and allow the Turkish invasion has drawn bipartisan condemnation. But it's also raised questions about the democratic approach. Most of the candidates, including Warren, have said U.S. troops should never have been in Syria at all. Although Gabbard and Buttigieg have each called for the U.S. to bring the troops back from the Middle East, they took opposing positions on Syria and Trump's moves. Gabbard has visited with Bashar al-Assad and said the U.S. shouldn't be trying for regime change in Syria despite him gassing his own people, including children. Warren sits on the Armed Services Committee, but she does have relatively little experience in foreign policy. Her background is as a law professor and a researcher on bankruptcy. She said last night that the U.S. ought to get out of the Middle East, 
but she added that we have to do it, quote, the right way and the smart way. She did not elaborate. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, a top State Department official testified that acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney organized a meeting this spring in which officials were determined to take Ukraine policy out of the traditional channels, putting Energy Secretary Rick Perry, U.S. Ambassador to the European Union Gordon Sunderland, and Special U.S. Envoy to Ukraine Kurt Volker in charge. Instead, George Kent, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State responsible for Ukraine and the former number two in our embassy in Kiev, told House investigators during a day-long deposition that he was instructed by his superior to, quote, lay low and instead focus on the five other countries in his portfolio, deferring to Volker, Sunland, and Perry, who called themselves the Three Amigos, on anything that came up related to Ukraine. This is the guy, the State Department, in charge of overseeing Ukraine policy. Kent took that as a sign that having been critical of their political machinations, he was being pushed aside. Mulvaney's meeting, which Kent told lawmakers took place on May 23rd, was just days after the administration recalled Marie Yovanovitch from her post as the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Administration officials informed the Ukrainians of their decision to shift authority to the Three Amigos in June, weeks before that infamous July 25th call. Mulvaney has emerged as a key facilitator of the campaign to pressure Ukraine to investigate Trump's political opponents. Mulvaney, a former Tea Party congressman from South Carolina, declined repeated requests for comment. Some of his defenders say he knew very little about the details of the trio's efforts in Ukraine, and he was meanly orchestrating meetings for the president. But current and former officials tell us that Mulvaney contributed substantially to the unfolding political crisis, both through his connection to key events related to the attempt to pressure Kiev, but also through his general approach to the job of being chief of staff which was driven by a perceived reluctance to do anything to displease the president. And Trump wanted Ukraine to investigate Biden. U.S. officials say that Mulvaney met frequently with Sunland and that details of their discussions were kept from then National Security Advisor John Bolton and other officials who were raising internal concerns about the hidden Ukraine agenda. This largely off-the-books effort could not have proceeded, current and former administration officials agree, without Mulvaney facilitating the meetings, halting the flow of $400 million in aid that had been approved by Congress and circumventing the national security bureaucracy. A former top U.S. official says that Sunland was talking to Mulvaney, quote, all the time. And whenever he was confronted by Bolton or Fiona Hill, Sunland would rebuff them, saying he felt no obligation to coordinate with them at all because he had direct lines to Trump and Mulvaney. Number two, Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal attorney, privately urged Trump in 2017 to extradite a Turkish cleric living in exile in the United States. It was and is a top priority of Turkish President Recep Erdogan. Turkey has demanded the United States turn over Fethullah Gulen, a permanent U.S. resident who lives in Pennsylvania, to stand trial on charges of plotting a 2016 coup attempt against Erdogan. Gulen has denied any involvement in the plot. The former New York mayor brought up Gulen so frequently with Trump during his constant visits to the White House, that one former official described the subject as Giuliani's hobby horse. One other official said it was, quote, all Gulen all the time. This caused White House aides to worry that Giuliani was making the case on behalf of the Turkish government without registering as a foreign agent. Also concerning to people inside the U.S. government was that Trump appeared receptive to the idea. 
often pressing advisors to learn more about Gulen's status and the possibility of extradition. One former senior administration official recalls that Trump asked frequently why Gulen couldn't be turned over. And apparently the president referred to Erdogan all the time as, quote, my friend. Administration officials were overwhelmingly opposed to the idea and explained to the president that the move would violate not just the legal process, but also would cause political damage. That apparently is what got Trump to back off. Giuliani told the Post that he never represented Turkey, and so he doesn't need to register as a foreign lobbyist. He's acknowledged getting paid in the last few months by clients in Romania, Brazil, Bahrain, Colombia, and Ukraine. He's also represented an Iranian dissident group, once so controversial that it was placed on the State Department's list of terrorist organizations. Giuliani seems to be at the center of everything. Time Magazine reports this morning that a Ukrainian oligarch who is wanted by U.S. law enforcement and has been fighting extradition has been helping Giuliani behind the scenes find dirt on Biden. Giuliani announced yesterday that he will not cooperate at all with the House's impeachment probe or comply with subpoenas that have been issued by investigators. That's notable because as the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, in 1985, Giuliani jailed organized crime leader Joseph Bonanno after he refused to testify. Also, during Bill Clinton's impeachment, Giuliani said that Watergate proved presidents and their aides are not allowed to ignore subpoenas and must comply. In related news, Giuliani's personal attorney, John Sale, announced that he will no longer represent Giuliani. And former Congressman Pete Sessions, a Republican from Texas who lost in the midterms, was subpoenaed by a grand jury for information about his interactions with Giuliani and his two Soviet-born associates who were indicted and arrested last week as they tried to leave the country with one-way tickets. Number three, some happy news, unless you're from St. Louis. <laughs> Moments after the debate ended last night, the Nationals won the pennant. Washington is going to the World Series. The Nats beat the St. Louis Cardinals 7-4 to to complete a four-game sweep in a National League Championship Series that was one-sided from the start. Manager Davey Martinez reached for something his mother always told him last night. Bumpy roads often lead to beautiful places, he said after the game. And this is a beautiful place. The Nationals will soon either play the Houston Astros or the New York Yankees for the title. They'll arrive there having slipped to a record of 19 wins and 31 losses in mid-May, then surging through the final four months of a once-lost season and collecting themselves for two dances with death in the earlier rounds, beating the Milwaukee Brewers, and the wild card, and then the Los Angeles Dodgers in the divisional series. In the American League, the Astros lead two games to one in the best of seven series after beating the Yankees yesterday four to one. The earliest the Astros can clinch is Thursday. Well, the earliest the Yankees can clinch at this point is Saturday. If neither does, a potential game seven to decide who the Nats will face in the World Series would happen on Sunday. The World Series starts next Tuesday night, and the Nationals will begin on the road. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, October 16th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.